While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. So tell me about the movie World War Z. Wait, I thought we were going to do that on the show. I was trying to do a thing where I would just kind of start the show informally. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Just, okay. Do it. Try it again. So tell me about the movie World War Z. The thing about the movie World War Z is that it had nothing to do with the book that that shares its name. Like, nothing. Except, I mean, there were zombies. Okay. that was... That was about it. What did, was it good or was it bad? Did, did that matter? I gave it a B minus. To Suzanne whom? Wait, a, to, Suzanne gave it a C plus. To whom did you give these grades? Like I just gave the movie a grade. Was there a man at the end collecting slips of paper with your grades on? <laughs> there was them? a quiz. There was a quiz. No, I we only because I wasn't planning on going to see it because it looked dumb in the trailers, and then like the New York Times review of it came out, and it was like, oh, this is okay, I guess. And that was basically my reaction. It's like it was it was okay, I guess. Yeah, the, I read a review. I think it was the Slate <clears throat> review that was like it ended with Brad Pitt like a like quoting an interview of his where he'd said he wanted to make a movie that his kids could go see as a family. Yeah, I mean, like an action movie, and and how then, old are his kids? I don't know, but his the writer's reaction was like, "Well, at least they'll feel safer knowing their dad is the action hero." Like that was like the takeaway. It's the summer yeah. of making movies, action movies for your kids, I guess. That was the thing about it is that even the violence in it, it was just it was. It was edited to be PG-13 because half the time in the action sequences, you had no idea what you were looking at. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those that was like edited really quickly, and they just expect big, like blurry, loud shots to, to convey the action to you. Zombies don't feel like PG-13 material. Um, yeah, and maybe that's maybe that's like the Romero, like the super graphic yeah, I original, don't know. you know, like the original zombie movies that. that Did you know that them. Max Brooks goes around giving lectures as some sort of zombie expert? Did you know that? Like in in some kind of character? I no, just like I just some like a that's his that's his field that, of scholarly study. That's just his thing. Like I think it started as like he would give a quote unquote reading of World War Z, which just. He just shows up and talks about the impending zombie apocalypse like it's going to happen. But I guess it takes on this kind of like performance art bent where it's like what he's really just talking about is actual preparedness for catastrophe. He just happens to be using a catastrophe that does not exist. You know what I mean? I guess that seems to be why people like that book anyway, though. Is not that I wish somebody would pay me to like go to college. Wait, lecture just, about wait, fan fiction. You want people to just pay you to go to college? Is that a scholar? I, mean, that would be, I would do that too, I guess. But <laughs> that's like the opposite of how it works. All right. So mm-hmm. this is Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. We've been talking about World War Z, which was a book that we already read. My name is Craig. 
My name is Andrew. Yeah, it's about the books you've been meaning to read and the movies that are based on them. <laughs> and the movies that are based on those books. Uh, and sometimes those movies are okay, and sometimes those movies are just fine, I guess, is what you said, right? What's the difference between okay and fine? Can you, can you go back over that for me? It's okay. It's okay. It did a good job. It tried, you know. Or it's That's how I feel about World War Z. Yeah, it's okay. But if it's fine, it's like, meh, it's fine. It was, it was fine. Like, it didn't offend me. So what's the next level down? Are we doing, like, like the books in a public school system and you rate the condition and it's, like, good, fair, poor, bad? Oh, is that is, is that, that the is thing that... in the, the textbook? Like, yeah. The, oh, it's like when we used to always sign, like, president's names inside of the. We would never write our own names inside of those books. Boy, that's hilarious. I'm just saying. We How, were... <laughs> what mischief you got up to in school? <laughs> you... Okay, James K. Polk. <laughs> you renegade? I would always use why well, I, I would always use Taft because he was comically large. He was, yeah. Good, he himself good, good was call. a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that story about him getting stuck in the bathtub apocryphal? No, I think it's for real. That's for real. All right. Maybe that's why Chris Christie got stomach staples surgery. Yeah, it's probably it's true. Because he didn't want to be he didn't want to be the next William Howard Taft if he like makes it to the White House. It's true. But if he makes it to the White House, he will prove to all of us that he is stronger than the storm. So Man, I this does not even gonna make sense for people who are not living in our region. But if you have watched if you live like near New York or in New Jersey or in Philadelphia and you've watched Hulu in like the last month. Yeah. There's been this, I guess it's a commercial for like New Jersey tourism. Yes, of course. And they, they recorded this, like this, we are the world style, like goofy song about how New Jersey is stronger than the storm. Stronger than the storm. I've heard it and on how the you radio. Should totally come, you should totally come gamble away all your money because Atlantic City's fine. I, I like, honestly, <laughs> not to be too uncouth, but I think Hurricane Sandy might be the first hurricane to get a jingle. Yeah? I don't think there was one for any other hurricane. I, I was going to name any, I was going to name like Katrina, and then I was like, no way, I don't think I've heard of any other hurricane jingles before. No, I mean, that's a, that's a thing down there, though. It's like... At least as of a few years ago when, when a few of our mutual friends and I started going, like, tourism was still depressed relative to what it had been pre-Katrina. But, uh, and, and maybe we would know better if we lived down there and we had heard the inspirational songs about how New Orleans is open for business. But <laughs> I will make a gross generalization about New Orleans and assume that the music for whatever they came up with was probably a lot better than the Stronger in the, so- in the Storm. Stronger than the storm. Yeah, song. I mean, it would be even if it wasn't known for for jazz. I think that it would be hard to do a song that was worse than "Stronger Than the Storm." Did Chris Christie write "Stronger Than the Storm"? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so too. All right, let's actually move on to the topic at hand, Andrew. What? So we talked about okay, we talked about what we talked about so far. We talked about a movie. Wait, <laughs> that had the benefit of being like kind of based on a book. We had we talked about the hurricane and the commercial about it. We talked a little bit more about Chris Christie than I expected us to. Yeah. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about how our conversation about books is long overdue. Uh, 
Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. All right. Well, why don't you tell me about the book that you read for this week? Okay. The book that I read this week is um, Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Wait, is it a which, question? No, it's not a question. <laughs> it's The Color just, Purple. It's The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Okay. No, no punctuation implied or you know, in actuality. Now, if we were stuck <clears throat> in an elevator for, say, 15 seconds and you needed me to buy this book from you right now, what would you tell me it was about? I would tell you that it's about the struggles of a black woman in uh, 1930s uh, Georgia, mm-hmm. in, or just the South more generally. Okay. And heard struggles both with, like, you know, socioeconomic things that that I think were common, you know, for the time, and also her own sexuality. So, See, like, I, lots of stuff that I'm really qualified re- to. Well, <laughs> really qualified to talk about. So, we read what we've only, we read uh, A Lesson Before Dying, which was about the black experience in the South, right? We haven't read any yeah. other similar books, right? I don't um, think so. I mean, did did of mice and men have any sort of racial component, or was it just about? There was one black character character in economic, of mice and men economic uh, struggles, which we talked about briefly, but that was not the main focus of that book. Um, so yeah, we are well versed in this topic. But I was glad that you that you even in your elevator pitch brought up the sexuality angle because I did notice that as I was doing my cursory bit of research on this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that seems to me to kind of separate it from other books about racism in the 30s in the South. You know, I'm thinking of the, like, Lesson Before Dying is the To Kill a Mockingbird, et cetera, et cetera. You know? Yeah, and I'm wondering if, if the fact that it was written, it was written in 1982. So okay. I'm wondering if the fact that it was written a little later and not um, not when that was, like, recent history, if that, like, colored the stuff that it talked about it all not to you know not to make a pun on the book yeah i was gonna say well (laughs) let's let's get the book's title out of the way why is it called the color purple it there is a dual meaning and both of them tie into like big thematic things for the book so so either either way we're gonna we're gonna launch off into our main conversation from from this one point which I guess is the uh, was your intent yep. when you asked me the question. Yep, that's, that's, I wasn't trying okay. to start more warm up conversation. <laughs> All right, two meanings. One is that that is like the color of, of the main. Okay, there's the main character. Her name is Celie. I think it's C E L I E. Yeah, I'll take Celie. So we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna say Celie. Is it short um, for Cecilia? The, uh, no, I don't think it's so. just Celie. All right, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, like last name names in general are, are kind of a kind of a thing in this in this book. But um, All right, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll maybe. get to that a little yeah. bit later. Um, it's like the color of her genitalia, and so as she is discovering her sexuality, like it's it's mentioned that that is just like the color that that they are. Is I I don't know if I want you to elaborate. I don't. <laughs> We'll elaborate more on sexuality In my prudish way, I don't know if I want you to elaborate on what that means, but okay, sure. I think the second point is the the one that will open the conversation a little bit better. All right, great. Um, There is a a section later in the book where Celie is talking to 
her um, kind of lover, like lover slash lifelong friend, uh, female friend. Her name is Shug Avery. Shug. Yeah. And um, like the the way the book is structured is it is it's an epistolary novel. Hey, yeah, yeah. I learned today that that means it's a it's you know composed of a series of like letters or like ostensibly personal communications. Now between pause people. this conversation real quick because you okay. do realize that I taught us that on our Frankenstein episode. Really? Yes. Nice work. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Great. I'm teaching. It's this is the review unit. Oh this great! Is, you got a B plus on the quiz. Re- repetition is the key to learning. So excellent. All right, Unpause. an epistolary novel, which I reeler. <laughs> oh my god! So who's writing letters to That's whom? Really um, most of the book is. Uh, it opens with Celie writing letters to God. Oh okay. And there's uh, there's a, so there's a point in the book where Celie and Chug are talking, and um, Celie has this sister named Nettie who she's been out of contact with for a really long time, and um, she assumes that you know Celie assumes that Nettie is is dead just because her husband is not like Nettie's been writing her letters for years and years and years, and her husband has not given her these letters. Okay, so she is she's assumed that her sister has just been dead for all this time. And so she's kind of going through a stage in her life where she's been writing these letters to God, but now she feels like God is not like listening okay. anymore. Okay. Are you there, God? It's me, Seely. You know, kind of. <laughs> and um, and so she and Shug are talking about this, and they're having a conversation about like what what does God look like? You know, what is God, and like how do you see God? And um. You know, the stereotypical thing is God is like this old white dude with a beard. Yep. Do they talk um, about that? Yeah, yeah. And they're, um, Shug is trying to explain to Seeley, like, you know, like God made sex and God made all this stuff. And like, this is what I think God is. And she's saying, you know, and and Celie asks Shug, you know, if if God is is vain because she says that God loves admiration, mm-hmm. and Shug says, no, God's not vain. He just wants to share a good thing. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and you don't notice it. Interesting. And so that's yeah. So that's like the the point in the book where the phrase the color purple comes up. So it's like a flower that stands out kind of thing. Yeah, or just like if you if you pass by something and you don't like wonder at it and you don't like appreciate it for for what it is, you know. Stop and smell the roses. Yeah, except like purple roses. Also have sex cuz God made it. Is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay. I mean so so yeah, the, I mean the book is written as a series of letters mostly from Celie to God and um it's a little hard to get into, like, initially, because it's written in this really strong um, dialect, I guess. I mean, it's the 1930s, and it's the South, and Celie is very poor, and she is, like, her schooling was cut off at a certain point, so she's, like, not, um, she's not, she, she's, like, lettered, but not especially well, so, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of slang, and there's a lot of like broken language and it it takes it's it takes kind of a little while to penetrate and really get into the style of of the book and start like 
noticing what it's saying instead of how it's saying it. Yeah, that's always a hard thing. I find I find reading dialect hard sometimes. And I'm I'm never quite sure if that's just laziness on my part, you know, or if or if I should be allowed to check out from a book or from something that's like written in a way that I can't quite understand it. Does that make sense? I think it's yeah. I mean, this is the kind of way the way I feel when I read Shakespeare, <laughs> when it's not like annotated. But I think a lot of the time with dialect, and even just with specific authors, like styles of writing, I think it can take. You know, you you can get through like the first you know ten percent, twenty percent of a book before it really starts. You really start to get used to it and start to like absorb more and like understand you know, more directly and, and with less like internal translation. Does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah. Well, to your point about Shakespeare, that's most performances. That's most experiences of going to see Shakespeare nowadays too. Cause the way that that dialogue is laid out is not only are you dealing with speech that is just different in terms of words that get used regularly, but it's also the way that thoughts are constructed. Like it takes time for your brain to get used to it. And then, it does take 10 or 15 minutes or you know 10 or 15% of the story or whatever that is to kind of get in that headspace and then deal with it. We don't usually deal with a lot of heightened language whether that be dialect or you know verse of some kind in mm-hmm. a lot of our mainstream entertainment. So that's always yeah. tricky. Mm-hmm. But um so yeah, it, it's mostly letters, and through these letters, Celie kind of tells God, and you know, by extension, the audience about um, like she's she's a teenager, mm-hmm. and she's being raised by you know um, Alfonso, I believe is her is her father's name, and he fathers two children by her and like takes them away and she doesn't know what happens to them. She just assumes that they're dead. Um, and eventually, um, there's a guy named Albert who like takes a liking to Celie's sister, Nettie. And Nettie is like not interested. (laughs) And, um, so her Celie and Nettie's father married Celie off to to Albert, and like they initiate, they go into this like loveless marriage, and Nettie is living with them for a while, but Albert like makes a pass at her, and so she runs off, and that like that's when she disappears from from most of the story. Hmm. And um, what is their standing? Like, what kind of community are they in? What kind of where do they? fall in that hierarchy does does Celie talk about that at all it's like they're free I mean it's like post-slavery but you know obviously things are not great for them like they don't have a lot of money um it later comes out that uh that Celie and Nettie's father is not actually their father he's their stepfather and um he just said that he was their father so he could inherit their mother is like a state. Oh, weird. So like, and that's like a late in the book revelation. That's like 75% of the way through. You find out that this, this thing that's been like hanging over most of the book. This kind of, yeah, this, this is not like quite as bad. I mean, it's still pretty bad, but yeah, it's not like the, the incestuous, you know, thing is, is not a factor anymore. What was this? 
What was the whole deal with her mother's estate? Like, how did her mother have any sort of wealth or anything like that? Um, Celia Nettie's actual father was a was a store owner. Oh, okay. And um, he and he was actually doing pretty well, but he got lynched and was and was killed. So I mean that. And there's like there's a section later where there's a um, girl named Sophie. So um, Celie marries Albert. And Albert has some kids from a previous marriage, and the only one of those who really factors into the story is a Harpo, who is a who is a um, you know the the oldest and and a man, mm-hmm. and he marries this woman named Sophie, who is like where Celie is really oppressed and like she does whatever Albert tells her to, and uh, you know at least in the in the early stretches of the book she's like really subservient and he hits her and it's and it's like no good and sophie is like a firebrand and she like she has a mouth on her and she <laughs> and and do people like that about her does she get gruff for it does she suffer it with well like dignity? harpo doesn't know harpo doesn't really know what to make of her because i mean it's they they get married and so like albert is telling harpo you know if you're a man you'll hit her and you'll you'll show her her place okay um but there's a section later in the book where the town's mayor and his wife like come upon like Sophie and her kids in town and and says, "Oh, you your kids look so clean and you you look like you're doing so well. You should come be our maid." And Sophie's like, "Hell no." Oh no. <laughs> and then the mayor slaps her for assassinating him and then Whoa! she punches him in the mouth and knocks like two of his teeth out. Oh my god. And then gets thrown in jail for it. Sophie's the best. Yeah, I know. She's pretty good. I liked her a lot. <laughs> now, how do you find all this stuff out? Is this all Seely writing to God about this? this? Is, yeah, this is all delivered in, in letters. And so the, the sense of the... You don't get a really great sense of like the community and the town, except you know that like lynching is obviously a thing. Um, like The best sense of community that you get is like this big, sprawling, kind of extended family that, mm. that coalesces around like around Seeley. And then there's, you know, there's Shug Avery who is a singer and she, um, she gets sick and she comes to stay with like Albert and Seeley because it turns out that she used to be Albert's mistress. Okay. And then she's initially like really gruff to, to Seeley, but then they grow to be friends. And then later on, like lovers as, as, um, as she kind of helps Seeley discover things about, herself and um so like there's there's that small family and then like harpo and sophie and their children are kind of a family and then um when sophie like because harpo is trying to beat sophie she like she leaves him and so he takes up with this girl whose name is mary agnes but everybody calls her squeak what (laughs) and they like they change their house into like a little kind of not quite speakeasy, but like a little, like just a place where they have singers and people come and drink and 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 hang out and stuff. Like a, just a bar, I guess, mm-hmm. would be the best way to describe it. Yeah, that's a that's a word you could have used <laughs> <laughs> if I thought about it. Okay, but um, there's yeah, there's just this big like kind of extended cast of characters that grows up around Celie as. And and the book kind of tracks her and everybody from like well, from her teenage years into their old age, and so like as as time goes on, like all these people kind of amass around them, and 
And that's like the, the relationships between all these characters is a lot of what the book is about. What is the scope of the book then? If you're saying it goes from is does it goes from her teens like all the way until late in her life? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And um, part of, you know, one of the major arcs is um, her relationship with her sister Nettie. And it turns out that her sister Nettie was not, you know, she's not dead. She didn't die after Albert made a pass at her and she ran off. She is in Africa um, with a pair of missionaries. Okay. And these missionaries just happen to have adopted Celie's kids that their stepdad gave up. Weird. Coincidence. And, um, and so um, I... I think it's a little more than halfway through the book. Um, Celie and Shug like liberate these letters that, that Albert had hidden in this trunk, like hidden away from them and, um, and start to read them. And so for, for, uh, for long stretches in the last part of the book, you get, you know, in the same way that you've been reading Celie's letters to God this whole time, you start to read Nettie's letters oh, okay. to Celie. And the tone, like, Nettie is, like, really educated, and she has a really strong command of the English language. And so there's a really clear, like, tonal break yeah, 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 in, like, yeah, yeah. The, like, a stylistic break. And one of the one of the things that I thought was kind of kind of neat is that I think after, like, there's a period after she starts getting Nettie's letters where Celie starts writing letters to Nettie instead of to God, because, you know, she's having, she's having like that crisis of faith that we talked about a little bit. Yeah, of course. And you can sense that her language, her like grasp on English gets a little better. And, and it's never like, it's never explicitly mentioned. Like it's, it's not even commented on in the book. And even if you read like the Wikipedia or summary or something, like it doesn't, it doesn't talk about this, but like, and I don't know if it's because she's trying to impress Nettie when she's writing to her or because, like, the effort of reading Nettie's, like, very well-constructed letters have made her language better. But, like, the language in her letters becomes less, like, a little, there's a little less dialogue, a little less slang and, like, shortcuts. Like, like there is, um like, all through the book when she says asked, like, when she writes asked, yeah, she yeah. writes asked, like, A-S-T. Mm-hmm. And they're like in one of the very last letters, she starts to write, you know, ask. Yeah. With, with a K of 17. What, so like, what do you I think? That, that's, I don't know. I thought that was kind of, that was kind of interesting to read. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think that's coinciding with in terms of the arc of her character? Like what is changing in her other than that? I mean, that might well, have to go back her, to her other plot stuff. I'm not sure, but yeah. Like later in her, later in her life, she, you know, she says to Albert, you know, you, she she stops being so downtrodden basically mm-hmm. and she says to albert you know you you beat me and you're no good and and so she leaves and goes and like takes up with chug and they go move somewhere and she um she starts to make these pants all right and, um all right and so like she's she, there's this whole section of the book where she makes these pants that are just for they're just for chug and because chug is on the road a lot singing and she's like eating bad because she's on tour. She makes them with like an elastic waist, and like, <laughs> and so she starts making these pants that are like really well, like finely tuned to individual people's like needs. Oh, and weird then, comfort pants. Yeah, and then like Alfonso, her her stepfather dies later, and she inherits like his house and that store, and so kind of gives her some to, independence. Yeah, like she's she starts a store and she's she's making pants and she's selling these pants. 
for a living and she becomes more like self-reliant and self-possessed yeah and, like, yeah content. and even later on in the book like albert mellows out and they they don't like resume a sexual relationship because obviously um Celie is does not swing that particular way but there there are some like really nice scenes where they have these really like deep conversations and it becomes obvious that he's like changed and become more like level-headed and is he humbled by her would you say yeah a little bit yeah what Um, do you what do you make of okay i don't feel like the book needs them i don't want to sound like that but are there positive male figures in the book or is it really about women kind of triumphing or this particular woman triumphing over domineering uh terrible male figures does that make sense i would say yeah it does make sense i would say that most of the male figures exist to be overcome Mm -hmm. i mean the the book is is a lot of the book is about gender roles yeah 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 yeah. it's kind of why why i want to ask about that yeah like harpo is there's a period like shortly after he marries Sophie where he's just like, he's happy. Like he and she are both really happy. And then Albert starts, you know, telling him, Oh, why don't you beat that woman? And why do you let her talk back to you? And Mm. why do you let her, like, why don't you put her in, in her place? And it's only after he starts trying to do that, that they become unhappy. So like, he's made to feel like less of a man because of the way that he is. And because he's trying to be a man in like the eyes of his father or his culture, like it brings unhappiness Yeah, yeah. down onto his head. There's the, um, the missionary couple that, that Nettie is with, um, their names are Samuel and Corinne. Um, for a long time, Corinne thinks that Samuel and Nettie had a relationship because the kids look like her. Oh, but it's because, yeah, because she's their aunt. Yeah, of course. Um, And she has like, they have this like deathbed conversation where Nettie says, oh, no, I'm their aunt. And it's like, it's not like instantly, but like, like uh, Corinne believes her on her deathbed. Yeah, yeah. Later, Nettie, Nettie marries Samuel, who is like, who I think in all of the book is the only like straight up good. Okay, guy figure. Yeah. Yeah. He's the only one who's not some awful wife beater. <laughs> to that end, are there any kind of reprehensible female characters that are like making it worse? Or is everybody kind of like a band of sisters? By the end, it's very band of sisters. Okay. Um, earlier in the book, when when Celia is, is more subservient and less, um, you know, less, less assertive. I don't I don't want to say that there are implications that she's like a that, that that's like a problem or something but it's like she's clearly not happy and she like gets much happier after she finds herself does that make any sense like, Yeah, I think so. But I think it happens But there it, aren't there aren't women who are like fighting for the status quo or anything. Like it's a very given that it's about African American characters in the South in the 1930s. It actually is a very positive book. Like it, it ends happily, which I was not expecting. Like after you read these letters for years and years and years, finally, mm-hmm. Nettie, Nettie, and like her family, she marries Samuel after after Corinne dies. Yeah, yeah. And they have like a happy family, and and the the book kind of ends 
after Celie has kind of found contentment and is like happy and then her sister comes back and it's just it's like it's very it ends very well and you would maybe not expect it to be this uplifting and and empowering i guess yeah it's life affirming in that way yeah yeah, yeah. um all right yeah cuz i'm just kind of intrigued by what the power structure is in that book and what kind of makes it endure the way it has if that makes sense because you know i think what oprah was in the film that was made of the book and then i think she was responsible for bringing that film to broadway as well yeah i believe this is another oprah's book club book oh yeah we keep reading those like it's not well i think there's this i guess there's this stigma that they have because i feel like every time i think of oprah's book club i just think of the secret (laughs) yeah that's that's different I think. But, it's not, yeah. <laughs> but they're not all like that. No. I mean, all right, so we've kind of been dodging around the whole sexuality thing for a little while. We've been talking about, you know, women getting what they deserve in a good way and, you know, coming uh, coming around and finding their true purpose in life. But it seems, it sounds like, anyway, that this kind of is coinciding with a some sort of sexual awakening. Is that true? Yeah. And the real turning point I think in Celia's life is, um, she's talking with Chug about like Chug is talking about how she really enjoys sex and how, how, you know, when she, when she does it with someone who she's that, who she really likes that like feels good and she wants to. And Celia is talking about how it's only ever been like, a chore uh, and it yeah. only like she kind of just wants it to be over. And, um, and so Shug is like, it like tells her about her genitalia and like how to, um, manually stimulate herself. And then later on, they kind of become, they don't become like exclusive. They don't. Oh, interesting. That's, that's not yeah. the kind of relationship they have, but they do become, like Shug is instrumental in in um, awakening Celie's sexuality and like making her realize that it's something that can be pleasurable and like can feel good, and so that's a real I mean that's a real turning point in her character from the da- the downtrodden character that she is initially into like the self possessed you know pants store owner that she is by the end of the book well i really like that she makes pants i don't know why i get such a kick i can see your face lighting up every time you're like she makes pants because just just in the book like you can tell how happy making pants makes her oh fair enough um (laughs) how graphic is the book is it because it is told from her perspective to god right it's it's i mean they talk about um they talk, that when they're talking about her vagina, they talk about her little button. Interesting, of course. And that's like, and they talk about like they talk about like breasts, and they talk about other things. I mean, it does it doesn't linger too long on any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it does it, it doesn't exactly dodge around it either. She's not writing you know? porn to God. No, 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 no. And 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 she's not like describing masturbating all the time or something. Like, yeah, yeah. It's it's um. It's more about it's it's more about it's it's more another stop in like her character's journey to to being happy than it is about and 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 discovering like what makes her happy and what makes her feel good 
than it is about like describing you know blow by blow how she how she comes to peace with her sexuality you know yeah yeah now i know that it's sounds like everything we've talked about has primarily been about like gender and sex but when we first started talking it we were also very aware that it is a novel with a keen sense of race relations like how does that factor in on top of it you know what i mean yeah i mean you don't see a lot of white characters directly in the book i mean there's the mayor who oh yeah true (laughs) who sophia punches (laughs) um and have I been calling her Sophie this whole time? Her name is Sophia. Yeah, you were calling her so you you are on like a friendly basis with Sophia because you think me she's and, yeah, great. me and her go way back. Yeah, she's just she's just Sophie. She's, no, her name is Sophia. I'm sorry, I apologize to you. Apologize to a so, to a fictional character. <laughs> and that I guess that um, yeah, you don't see a lot of white characters like you are you are aware of these characters like economic situation, but actually like Shug is a pretty successful singer. Um Seeley becomes a pretty successful pants merchant. So like by the end of it they're actually, you know, especially given the location and the time, yeah. Like they're doing really well for themselves. Interesting. Um so like yeah, yeah, there're just so few white characters in the book there's okay there's one so sophia works for the mayor's family like they she is um she's kind of languishing in prison a little bit so they um so her family like pulls some strings and like tells the the like the warden of the jail that she's in that the thing that would make her the least happy in the whole world is not to be in jail but to be working for some white family okay and so she basically ends up raising this um this white family's children and the daughter of that family like comes up and has her own baby and there's a scene where where she brings Sophia this baby and it's like trying to get Sophia to say oh isn't he the cutest baby don't you just couldn't you just eat him up and Sophia's like I don't feel anything for this baby because like he's going to be brought up to to hate me and to like look my down god at me. Yeah. I guess I mean I guess she's right though. She I mean yeah, she is. I mean that but most of the most of the book is about like self-discovery and about Celie's arc like yeah, yeah. race relations don't I mean they're they're obviously there because I don't think you could write a book like this like set in the place where it's set and in the time that it's set and have it not be a little bit about race relations. Yeah, yeah, of course. But um but I feel like it's not as as um as driving a force as as some of the other some of the other factors that we've talked about i i don't know if it's coming through in the conversation that we're having but like part of the thing with this book that part of the reason i wanted to read it actually is cuz it's it's really like far removed from my situation yeah let's talk about that for a second right is that you are reading a book set almost 100 years ago 85 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. About a black woman in the South who makes pants. You don't make pants. I don't make it pants. I don't understand that. Like. <laughs> uh, who is or at least discovers a lesbian side to herself because she doesn't 
she never divorces her husband, right? She stays with her. No, husband. but I mean, she she never after after her self discovery, she never has, or at least it's never documented. She never writes that she has ever has sex with a man again. So, like, I wouldn't say that's a lesbian side. I would just say that she's she's a lesbian, but I don't know that that self identification was like a thing in that yeah, culture in that time period. Mm-hmm. So like now we would call it lesbianism, but but then at that time I don't think they had any particular. And yet it's being written in the eighties when that is definitely a thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean the obvious the the audience clearly knows what's going on. Yeah. But like the word lesbian, I don't think comes up in the book yeah, yeah. like ever, even one time. So with with the risk of sounding hokey, like what did you learn? Like what did you? From encountering an experience so alien to your own, in a way, if that makes sense. It does. (laughs) It's... Or just what surprised you? Like, what did you... What did you... Just, like, as a a straight white dude, like, I've not really had to deal with a whole lot of adversity, and I've not had to... (laughs) Yeah. You know, certainly everybody, everybody... grows up and kind of discovers what they like and what they don't like and and stuff but you know what what I think you and I as a pair of straight white dudes mm-hmm. have kind of dealt with has been you know it's been kind of like what's expected of us and we really haven't had to buck any trends or like we've never had to wonder like why do we why are we sexually attracted to the things that we are sexually attracted to, you know? Yeah, there was that thing floating around on the internet a couple weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago, that was that, like, I don't know if it was some sort of meme of going up and, like, asking straight people, like, hey, when did you first realize you're straight? Like, that was, like, a thing that was going around. Yeah, Um, so, like, we've never had to do that. There's not been a moment where we discover oh, this is why I've never felt this way about anything in my whole life. It's because I don't feel the way everyone else feels. Like, we we feel the way that, quote-unquote, normal people feel. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. typi- typical is the better, is obviously the better word. Yeah. But, like, I, for the society that we live in, the way that we feel is is normal. And so, well, and I so think- a, big part of, a big part of reading this book was just, like, was reading about how that you know how how that transition goes like how long somebody can go through life being unhappy and like not knowing that basic fact or like not admitting that basic fact to themselves yeah that's huge and 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 then once you i imagine once you go through that whatever that transformation is i think i always have to check myself with making sure i have enough empathy for people for whom that becomes a defining characteristic, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, to have your identity hinge on that on that aspect of sexuality or whatever it is seems unnecessary if you're going through the typical experience. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, that... If if you feel a way that is just way different than the way that a lot of other like the majority of people feel, then obviously that becomes more of a defining thing about you, because especially for people who who feel like they need to advocate for it to make it easier for other people to make that discovery about themselves. Yeah, to, for that courage, and then you ha- kind of have to shoulder that courage as like your main thing. 
and then that changes what that thing is because it, you know it's not as readily accepted so you have to kind of trumpet it in a way that you don't have to trumpet other things mm-hmm. um, that's interesting so, so yeah i mean i i don't know if if learn is the right word it wasn't like yeah, I was yeah. totally in the in the dark about that but as as somebody who is not really, I would say, in the target audience. Like, I, you know, to the extent that something like this has a target audience, mm-hmm. um, that's like what spoke to me the most, or like what struck me the the most emphatically. In an age where we are dealing with homosexuality on in America, at least as a you know legislative issue like we are just like fighting this battle right now do you think this book has extra res- resonance if that does it matter to that discussion at all this book is way more about the personal relationships than to it that, is about yeah. than it is about legal relationships oh, or of like, course of per- course of or course. official relationships like it's it's much more about about people discovering what makes them happy and like who they are. And I think that's that's really important to the legislative effort. I mean that has obvious implications for for anything else that for for any you know for any for anybody who lives their life like outside of the quote unquote norm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that has obvious implications, but yeah, this is this is a lot more about about the personal journey of of Celia in particular. Which I I think you're right to say that that actually probably has more weight than writing a pointed political novel. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, people there, the people even even people who are like out. A lot of the time, the story of how they became out is still very like personal to them and, and very like yeah. something that they they don't talk about lightly and so i i think the book that deals so closely with with somebody going through these feelings and like finding this stuff out about herself i mean that's that really that still carries a lot of of weight now you know 30 years after it was written in a in an age where where it's not you know it's not become it's not become automatically acceptable to be that way, but it is, I think, become much more acceptable. And I think the winds are clearly blowing in that in that direction. Yeah, while it's, I would say, one of the hurdles to it becoming even more widely accepted is the rhetorical aspect of the argument. So something like this potentially can neutralize that, you know. Or, or at least help people, you know, help people like, you and me who haven't had to go through something like this, you know, something so, so confusing Mm -hmm. and so bewildering, you know, it it can help us understand to some extent, like what, what it's like to make that realization. Yeah. 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 I mean, I really, (laughs) whenever we talk about stuff like this, I really hope that people aren't like listening and being like, Oh, you poor white boys. (laughs) How little, you know, (laughs) I think they're always doing that, even when we're not just reading books like this. But, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, there. Th- this book is very dense, and there are a lot of characters in it, and there are a lot of like small relationships that that are part of the tapestry that we haven't really gone into. But yeah. I think, yeah, it, like the even more so than the race, 
I think. I mean, the race is obviously a factor, but I think sexuality and like self-realization are the really, the really big things that I took away from this and, and like the reasons to keep reading it now. Great. If that makes sense. Yeah. So no, I'm with you. Yeah, but so that's, that's what I got. That, that's the color. purple. That's the color purple. Close the book on it as it were. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Don't shake your head at me. You've been listening to overdue a podcast ostensibly about books such as the color purple. Uh, thanks for joining us. You can tweet us. If you have suggestions or comments on our lives as average white boys um, at twitter.com slash overdue pod or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash overdue pod. Or you can email us about the books we're reading or books you want us to read at overdue pod at gmail.com. Yeah. And we also have a website overdue podcast.com. Um, up there, we have links to our RSS feeds and our iTunes feeds, so you can subscribe and get the new episodes as they come out. And um, also, if you would rate and review us on iTunes, that would be awesome. Right now, our iTunes page says that we have not received enough ratings to, you know, to display a star rating next to the podcast. No. So, yeah. So if you guys could help us turn that around in the next week or two, that would be amazing. Um, up on that website, we also have links to Amazon for the books, not just the books we're reading, but the books for the next two weeks. And uh, if you want to both read along with us and support the podcast, um, if you could use those links to buy the books, we get a tiny, teeny, tiny little cut of that. And it helps like defray our hosting costs and um, you know the personal strain of reading all these books. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's really what this is all about. Yeah, I mean it's all about all about the green. <laughs> that's why I, that's why I'm reading these books. Uh, and before we go, I just want to thank everybody for tuning back in after an off week, uh, scheduling conspired to keep us down, but we are back and we are strong, and we are stronger than the storm. <laughs> I was just gonna say. <laughs> I think that'll do it for this week. We'll see you next all time. Right. Yeah, thanks everybody. Bye.